Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, January 13th, 2022. I'm John Fodhortz, the editor of Commentary. Noah Rothman is still out. With us, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. So we started, uh, we we concluded yesterday's podcast talking about Abe's blockbuster piece. Yes, there is a counter-revolution available for everyone's perusal at commentary.org right at the top of the page. You can't miss it. Uh, Remarkable article, sequel to his article, Yes, uh, Yes, This is a Revolution uh, from... uh, was it September 2021? Yeah. 2020? 2020. Right. So uh, this is sort of 18 months after How Stands the Revolution and the Counter-Revolution. And I want to, uh, since as I said yesterday, uh, our description or Abe's description of what's going on uh, leaned on the negative, or let's say leaned on the idea that the revolution is uh, is going, in some ways is going perfectly fine for the revolutionaries, um, and that we were therefore, you know, basically tricking you into thinking that maybe there were there was good news on this front, but in fact, there was not a lot of good news. There is good news, or, you know, if you don't want this revolution to succeed, there is plenty of evidence, as Abe did detail and details in the second half of his piece, uh, to show that um, the onslaught has created a counter force that is much stronger than any of us, I think, anticipated would be present. Um, it hasn't really manifested itself in the private sector, which is where there's been the greatest level of success uh, in some ways uh, for the post-George Floyd racial revolution, uh, kowtowing, the demands for re-education, all of that. But in the public sector, and not just in Virginia and the schooling stuff and the CRT stuff, but in the public sector, um, there is there has been some a pretty remarkable success. And the latest one comes uh, from our friends at Legal Insurrection and Bill Jacobson, the um, the Cornell Law professor who started this blog, can't remember, 15 years ago, maybe a little less, just to just to sort of talk about uh, how his prof- his profession, sort of legal uh, law school, law school, law school teaching had sort of slipped uh, into, you know, PC and and disaster. And it's become a kind of very populist site with a it covers a lot of trials and things like that. Well, uh, legal insurrection, uh, the Legal Insurrection Foundation, I believe, joined with Judicial Watch, a longtime conservative activist group and sued the city of Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, Because it turns out that, uh, you know, in 2021, Asheville uh, created two scholarship programs. Uh, They entered into, the city entered into an agreement with the Asheville City Schools Foundation to establish and administer the City of Asheville Scholarship Fund. It awarded two types of scholarships. The first to be awarded, quote, in perpetuity to black high school students within Asheville City Schools with special consideration given for black students pursuing a career in education. The second directed to black, indigenous, or people of color who are educators or staff of Asheville City Schools and who are pursuing further education or certification and judicial watch and the legal Insurrection Foundation said, uh, 
sorry, um, these are public funds. You cannot earmark them or target them exclusively to people of one race or or uh, refuse to allow people from another race to apply for them. Um, the funds provided by the city of Asheville for the city of Asheville scholarship came from the settlement of an unrelated lawsuit. So the city of Asheville got some money in a lawsuit and the city council then directed the city manager to donate the proceeds of that lawsuit, $475,000 to the Asheville city schools foundation. Um, with the idea that the funds would be used, quote, in such a way as to provide the public benefit of advancing racial equity within the community. So the case has been settled. They sued. The case has been settled. Asheville has agreed in pretty short time to end its racially discriminatory practices. Um, all the provisions in the city-funded scholarship program relating to race have been removed and the one in uh, relation to uh, educators. Um, instead, uh, the on yesterday or the day before yesterday, Asheville City Council approved a resolution that reads, the scholarship will give preference to applicants whose household members, including parents and or guardians, have a high school education or less. These applicants representing first generation college students and the discriminatory language from the educators thing has been removed entirely. I bring this up only to say that um, now uh, that everybody's consciousness has been raised, and now that um, and now that let's say the revolutionaries are 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 getting incredibly frank and let's say not particularly clever about hiding their tracks when it comes to what it is that they want and what kinds of discriminatory uh, measures they want to pass. Uh, there's blowback. There's an almost instantaneous blowback in the form of somebody like this, you know, like uh, legal insurrection and judicial watch filing suit. Almost immediately, we have, you know, we have uh, all of it. this is not like the long term uh, systematic effort to challenge affirmative action that has been going on for 25 years, which is a very serious, sober effort that goes at different affirmative action efforts, particularly at public universities, uh, or now, of course, in the most notorious case, the, the sort of the Harvard uh, Asian uh, American discrimination stuff, which you know follows a very long history of trying to thread the needle of what affirmative action is. Are you allowed to aggressively recruit minority members or do you or do you discriminate in favor of minority members against people who don't fit in that category? This is more like, okay, we're now doing what Ibram X. Kendi and, and these people want us to do. So we're just doing it that way. And um, I think in almost every case where stuff like this is going to happen, there is now going to be immediate action against it. And that is the counter-revolution. And we shouldn't underestimate its value or its meaning or the speed with which it has arisen to respond to a lot of this. Abe? Yeah, I think uh, your point about um, it being so, um, first of all, that the implementation of these things were so sudden, um, as opposed to, uh, 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 you know, um, civil rights 
the implementation of of, of civil rights uh, measures uh, taken uh, decades back. Um, it's as if um, institutions and cities and and whomever else they sort of flipped a switch and said, okay, we're now going to do things this way, and because there was a desperation because if they didn't, um, then they were on the wrong side of history, and uh, Lord help them. Um, but when you do that, of course, yes, you leave yourself open to these kinds of challenges. And, you know, the, the amazing thing here is that you can fight City Hall, uh, you know, in this case, almost literally. And that is that is one of the extraordinary things about this country worth preserving. That This is this is why um, uh, America is exceptional and why it isn't the evil place that uh, revolution, revolutionaries want you to believe it is, because you can fight injustice and and succeed. And momentum comes when you have a succession of wins. And we are seeing this succession of wins. And that sort of builds momentum, builds strength, and 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 swells the movement, the the the, the counter-revolution movement. So yeah, it is it is very encouraging. It does, however, I will say it takes individuals being willing to to stick their necks out a little. And I say this looking at people like Azra Nomari and other parent leaders who who as soon as they saw what was going on in some of the um, admissions only public high schools in their area, in this case, Thomas Jefferson High School in Virginia, stood up, started talking to other parents and saying, this is not acceptable. And these were not people who were all right wingers. Many of them are on the left side of the aisle politically. Um, I'll say my kids are in D.C. public schools. And during the height of lockdown, uh, when their schools were closed, DCPS sent out an email saying that offering a program only for students of color. Uh, I immediately the the nice thing about living in D.C. is you can't throw a brick without having a friend who's a lawyer who'll do some pro bono work for you. So I, I a lawyer friend of mine took uh, took some time out of his schedule and helped me draft a letter that was sent to DCPS saying this is illegal. Please explain yourselves. And they immediately backed off because they knew what they were doing. So I do think it does take individual parents in the school system, individuals who who are being shut out of these opportunities to are to, to send those letters and to say, this is not acceptable. I think this is illegal and put the burden on those institutions doing these things to explain the legality of what they think they're doing because they can't. And they will often immediately back down. DCPS did, although they did have a caveat of, we still retain the right to do special things for historically oppressed minorities. And, and that excuse will continue to be used. But if you force their hand and say, please show us legally how this works, they often can't and they will back off because they don't want a lawsuit. But you do. It does take individuals doing that every time they see a violation of this sort. Um, the. The earlier wave of, uh, you know, let's say the misuse of the Civil Rights Act to advance affirmative action and and, you know, the the sort of the uh, putting the finger on the scale to favor certain groups over others, something like that. Uh, the people who wanted to do that were very legally and politically sophisticated, and they anticipated and took account of counter arguments as they crafted their policies to hide their tracks, let's just say or to make sure that what they were doing was sufficiently ambiguous that you couldn't say that they were pursuing explicitly discriminatory policies. Um, it was all part of the way these policies were crafted in the 80s and 90s. Uh, they, they were, it was understood that there, was, there were sophisticated arguments against the sorts of things that they wanted to do. 
indeed, I think there was a real understanding that a lot of what they wanted to do violated the Civil Rights Act, which which created the notion of affirmative action. And it was debated in, in Congress as the Civil Rights Act was being was going through the process to say, would there be quotas? Would there be numerical targets? Would there be discrimina- discrimination against current living people to remedy past injustices to people who are now dead or people who are not the actual subjects of whatever policy are in place? And, uh, and, you know, the debates, the, the promise was that there would be no such discrimination. And, of course, that's what people want. Because if you want to use these policies and not be race neutral or race blind, how are you going to prove that they're working? That's why you want quotas. Because you want to be able to say, I want this policy. I want more black students. I want more Hispanics. I want more of this. I want more of that. So... You have targets. You need targets so you can fulfill your numbers. And and it was understood that that was a danger. So it got all very mushy. And all of the Supreme Court jurisprudence on this is very weird and complicated, in part because it was understood by the crafters that they needed to do what they could to make their arguments elastic so that they could they could be even in bad faith, they could stretch to fit the definitions of what was and what was not constitutional. In a period like this, where you have this sort of revolutionary fervor, the people who are going to put these policies in place do are not sophisticated about it. They think it is axiomatic that um, because of past discrimination, some of which is 150 years old, white people born today have an existential privilege and preference that needs to be counteracted by efforts to raise up and and give preferential treatment to non-whites. This flies in the face of everything we know about elementary fairness, which is that a kid born in 2002 or 2004 should not be subject shouldn't have to pay for the sins of their fathers unto the fourth generation. We are not the Torah. We are America, and we do not believe in generational, we do not believe that you bear genetic responsibility for the misbehaviors of others, nor nor should we accept the contention that, you know, uh, it's th- this is a different kind of fairness. This is a kind of created fairness because the unfairness is sort of built into the system. That, but that's the role of the 1619 Project. And and, and then I, I know Abe has something to say. I just want to say that is why uh, the progressives on the left have embraced that project with such fervor and have absolutely gaslit the public about the major uh, errors, both historical and interpretive, that it promotes, because that's their evidence. They say, look, actually, all of history proves it. We have this whole historical, we have this best-selling book from the New York Times, Nicole Hannah-Jones, showing this. They use that as evidence of historical oppression to argue exactly that John to say currently we have people of who are people of color are still systemically oppressed. Now it doesn't matter if an individual, you know, African American upper middle class kid is getting, you know, easily goes into Harvard with lower SAT scores than a poor white Appalachian kid because systemically 
that could be the case that he was oppressed or she was oppressed. So that's what they need. They need that kind of confected history to argue their case. Anyway, yeah, some, so my, so, yeah go so, ahead. I'm sorry. Some, the two, two points I want to make. So, something I said in the original essay, and yes, this is revolution, is that it, when I was comparing what was going on here to revolutions uh, in the past and in other places, um, in all these other places, there were um, actually reified, extraordinarily unjust systems of aristocracy um, uh, that 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 presided over all social and governmental interaction. And what what the revolutionaries did here was try to create an aristocratic class in uh, in whiteness. That 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 was that became the the aristocracy that that they were going to uh, um, uh, fight against. And, you know, it very, in various ways, they, they were, they were successful at it. And that's, and, and, and that they're, they're continuing uh, to do that. Uh, I just want to bring up a point about the, the sort of the flicking the switch in the immediate uh, aftermath of, of George Floyd's uh, being murdered and, and, and the pushback. And there's, there's actually some examples from the private sector um, uh, that ha- didn't get much news. Uh, but Immediately after, uh, in, in, in June of 2020, Uber Eats, DoorDash, and uh, uh, Postmates all announced, these are food delivery services, announced that they would be waiving delivery fees for black-owned businesses only, right? And everyone with, with you know, sort of any sense of, of, of you know, discrimination and, and constitutional rights um, said, well, this is obviously, this cannot pass. This is, this is, this is illegal. They're, they're going to get sued. They're gonna... And they kept pushing back, pushing, nope, this is what we're doing. We're, we're full steam ahead. So eventually they, they were sued, uh, in Arizona and the Arizona, the, the, the uh, uh, attorney general, attorney general in Arizona settled with them and said, look, you cannot this, but this, it took a year. This wasn't until until uh, until last year, until 2021. They said, "No, you cannot." It doesn't matter if your intentions are good. Uh, supposedly, uh, you you cannot you absolutely cannot discriminate against non-black owned businesses. So even in the private sector, uh, when they go this far, mm-hmm. when they when they when they adopt um, policies on a dime that that are intended to uh, reverse the order of things. Um, you you can push back and you can win. So that's the as I say that's that's the heartening example of this. I mean, you know, forty years ago when when the first fights over affirmative action happened, um, they were won by the anti affirmative action types on on very plain grounds that in a lot of these cases and a lot of places, what you had was class based discrimination, like the what was. Who who was being discriminated against were 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 working class men mostly, you know, uh, public sector working class men, firefighters, you know, lowering standards for uh, admission to certain types of public sector jobs uh, in order to increase minority level participation, uh, downgrading physical requirements, and then also in terms of uh, sex-related differences, downgrading physical requirements that you, for public safety reasons, you want to have present in your fire department. You want someone who is strong enough to pick up an axe and smash through a door. You know, you want somebody who can 
climb a ladder really fast. You know, it's harder to to have it happen with a you know with a with a uh, with a female morph. You know, and and stuff like that. And that th- there were real actual victims of these policies. Uh, and that was true at the college level. You know, Alan Backey, the whole point about the Backey case, the first real reversal in affirmative uh, action, uh, he was a, a white male, California guy, applied to Davis, uh, University of California, Davis Medical School, and got exactly the same score and exactly as, 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 as some as others and was not admitted, even though he basically, there was no reason not to admit him. And they, he was not admitted because he was white and they wanted to give uh, this position to somebody who was black. And, and the idea was Alan Backey wasn't a plantation owner. Alan Backey didn't own slaves he was, you know, a guy in his twenties and nineteen. He was born in nineteen fifty. I don't, I don't remember what his national origin is, but this is, of course, also part of the case against reparations, which is, I should pay reparations. Like, you know, my family, the, my, the, you know, the the first person in my family to come to America uh, came in eighteen seventy nine, and three others came in the twentieth century, and I'm you know, like 75% of people in the country or something like that don't have roots that date back to antebellum times. What reparations do I owe? What re- I, I don't even have reparations to pay for my ancestors who weren't participants in slavery. Um, and so the idea there is, well, you benefit in a society that privileges your kind against somebody else's kind. And that is not cricket that's not that's that's not elementary justice says you don't punish somebody or or you know expropriate for something that he didn't do you don't anti-racism ideology says you should and and there are it's not just in schools and in opportunities uh, lost that have real consequences for individuals the most recent case and th- this is an example where it used to be that sometimes conservatives would sort of raise alarms about small things related to affirmative action into these sorts of policies and kind of spin out the worst case scenario, the slippery slope. And, you know, so the other side could go, oh, they're just being alarmist. This is not a problem. They just, just calm down, you crazy right-wingers. So what are the, but but here's how things have changed. So on Monday, Tucker Carlson does this segment about New York's COVID therapeutic policies, which are wildly racist. And our friends at the Free Beacon, Aaron Zabarium, wrote a great piece looking at not just New York, but at Minnesota and some other states where, where the built into the regulations about who gets uh, very limited COVID therapeutics is the fact that they are considering race as a as a factor that allows uh, people who are non-white to the front of the line. So Tucker Carlson said, "Look, if you if you follow the logic of this, a Haitian, an illegal Haitian immigrant who's 18 years old, could walk into a hospital emergency room and get those therapeutics before an old white dude." So the white person who's old is actually a greater risk, but because of these regulations, which are anti-racism through and through, those are the principles of anti-racism, 
you would give the treatment to the person who needs it least and who is least vulnerable simply because of race. So these are all uh, obviously going to be challenged legally. But everybody said, inclu- including, you know, my favorite person, Nicole Hannah-Jones, said, oh, this is nonsense. This is an example of white nationalism. She's completely wrong. It, this is this theoretical could and possibly has even happened already. This is what they want. So the idea that we even have to dramatize it now, you don't. It's kind of shocking how blatant it is. And, and to Abe's point, that actually helps because you can say, look, this is crazy. And most people will look at that and say, that's crazy. Right. By the way, that, in, in the in the guidance that that talks about um, race and ethnicity as uh, risk factors, um, there's there's sort of some medical discussion, but it's but there's a lot of um, just sort of straight up social justice uh, uh, gobbledygook about um, systemic inequities. Um, this is you know, and this is this is in the FDA guidance, you know, about how systemic inequities have made it so that race is a is a is a risk factor that may be considered in in jumping the line one of the interesting things about the actual settlement is that it 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 puts its finger on the you know on the scales of class right so it says it goes from race to class and says this these scholarships are for people whose parents had a high school education or less um that has always been the big fight pretty much in liberal circles or leftist circles where the concern is, you know, how are you going to rectify injustices and restructure, you know, and use the levers of power to restructure American society to benefit, you know, people who need help, which is not the way conservatives tend to look at social policy and governmental action and what it means to live in a just and fair and free society. But um, that big fight is, Class. Stop talking about race. Start talking about class. Start talking about how uh, all the things that people focus on when they talk about race uh, are actually class. They're, they're not class-based problems, but they re- they reflect a larger reality uh, that crosses racial lines. Poor health come. Poor health outcomes um, are you know endemic uh, among people of lower income and lower education levels. Um, uh, they don't live healthy lifestyles. They don't take care of themselves in the same way. Bad police outcomes, bad, bad encounters with police too. Right. Uh, yeah. if, if, right. You, if you factor in, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, socioeconomic class, right. um, race, race becomes a, a, a marginal factor. And I think here that you see, the political danger to Democrats and what's been going on in the possibly revolutionary, not revolutionary, I don't want to use that word again, possibly sort of epic-shaking hints of a political realignment among uh, Latinos, Hispanics, whatever you want to call them, which is we've now had two years of focus on the systematic injustices done to black people, right? And and there's all this, and for 20, 30 years, uh, Latino and Hispanic activists have essentially attempted to claim that they deserve the same kinds of, uh, what would you call it, interventionist affirmative action policies that are enjoyed by, or enjoyed, but I mean, that, that are sort of directed at, at black people. Uh, black people having a specific, there's a specific reason that they exist in the United States, which is the legacy of slavery. They were systematically slavery and Jim Crow. They were 
either, you know, they were either denied their essential humanity and civil rights, or they were systematically discriminated against by government policy. And therefore, there was the argument that they they had there was grounds in which they deserved to be brought forward in a way that okay. So my point I'm trying to bring up here is when you start playing these games about whose favor, who gets more special goodies from the government for your, basically your, your existence. Um, when you push this too far, you start creating a hostility level between these minority groups and Latinos in America. We have a lot of different reasons for going about this way, but uh, the idea is there's a revolution in hand. And so there, the finger is going to be pushed on the scale for black people and Hispanics, many of whom have been here two or three or four generations are more likely to say, Hey, wait a minute. Like white people sit around going, okay, you know, yeah, we have it pretty easy, but Hispanics and Latinos aren't going to say we've had it pretty easy. They're going to say, you know, it's hard for us to like, why do you get why do you get these good? And, you know, what the hell is going on here? And and something is going on there. And if and that shift really happens, the catastrophe to the Democratic base is beyond compare. Like this is this is this is a moment almost unlike any other in American history. You could have the largest single minority group in the United States shifting its allegiance from one party to which it was once overwhelmingly attached to the party that supposedly is, you know, monstrously evil to it. Well, you know, there's also, there's this assumption on, on the part of the identitarian social justice left that Hispanic Americans want to be in their grievance club, you know, and so, so look, we 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 we're gonna we're going to extend these things to you. You can you can enjoy this too, and as as we're seeing in polls and in in at, at uh, in the ballot box, this is a faulty assumption. Millions and millions of of, of Latino Americans want to be, are, pride themselves on being American, not 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 being this. Um, beaten up class that 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 has been um subjugated by americans that is that is increasingly it's increasingly clear that is not how they think of themselves uh they reject the the latinx terms uh, as we've discussed on this podcast overwhelmingly they reject uh defund policies they believe in more policing they are not happy about uh what's going on at the borders at all um no, th there's there's very little evidence that what the the identitarian left thinks Hispanic Americans are um, has anything to do with what they are actually are. There was a there was a fascinating little mini uh, uh, example of this at the height of all the the uh, 
post-George Floyd riots and protests in, I think it was in Louisville, where a Hispanic restaurant owner refused to, to do what all the other uh, businesses had caved to the Black Lives Matter movement had done, which is put up a sign in the window sort of showing their support for the movement because the movement had been fairly destructive in that part of town. And this business owner went on local news. He's like, I'm not doing that. It's like the mob. The mob comes through here and says we have to all give them a, you know, do things a certain way. No, I am an independent business owner and I'm not going to be told how to run my business. And it was this real shock to the to the sort of Black Lives Matter activists. They're like, how dare you? You're you're not white. Why aren't you joining us? And they really couldn't get their heads around the idea that this guy saw himself first and foremost as an individual and a business, small business owner who was part of a community and he could make up his own mind. And that was for me, when I read that story, it was kind of, uh, we had some listeners who sent us sort of follow-ups on that. It was fascinating. This is a small, you know, Louisville is not a huge city, um, but this, this kind of thing is happening all throughout the United States and you're not going to see it in the kind of media bubble that tends to embrace uncritically the anti-racism arguments. Uh, I'm trying to find this number, but um, and maybe I'm alighting two things. So you guys may want to help me with this. Uh, there was this shock Quinnipiac poll, I think yesterday, that showed uh, Biden with a 33% approval rating, which if it, which appears to be you know something of an outlier, more than something of an outlier. But um, if so, means that he has now matched uh, Trump's low point uh, in polling. And Trump's low point in polling came uh, in the wake of, Char- of the Charlottesville uh, riot. Um, uh, and, and this is not coming in the wake of anything except, you know, all the policies coming together uh, that look like it's terrible. And I believe in that poll, the Hispanic number was astoundingly bad. Now, I, again, I, that's why I'm, I'm a little hesitant to say. I'm, I'm seeing was, something that says 28%. Okay. Move. So Biden has a, Biden, Latino voters in the United States are historically 70 to 75% Democratic voters. Okay. Um, it's now sort of gotten to like 70%, 69% Trump. You know, the great surprise of 2016 was that Trump got, the same percentage of the Latino vote that that uh, Romney got in 2012, even though he had, you know, attacked the judge, for being, you know, all that stuff, um, which meant that it was pretty hardcore that it was like 30 percent, you know, uh, that these were like members of the Republican base and they weren't going anywhere. Biden at 28 percent approval. That's what I mean. That's where you build on some of these anecdotal things, right? Which is the the border counties in Texas and the and the you know mostly the Cubans in South Florida and all of that uh, going you know switching like thirty to forty points in Trump's favor in twenty twenty, and this then extends it because there is no Trump, right? There's just Biden, and the argument that is that is going on here, if that poll is matched by others, is that Biden is destroying the Democratic Party by alienating remember there are i think a third again as many latinos as there are african americans in the united states uh or or you know in just in raw numbers latinos make up the larger minority group uh, in the united states and so you know um they're still a minority group whites still make up what is it like 72 percent of the of the voting elect you know the of the electorate or 73% or something like that. Uh, uh, you know, but this is, 
very, very, very serious. <laughs> this is very, very serious. Like, I don't even know how to how to calculate the seriousness of this as a political matter. 18 percent. Uh, as of 2017, 18 percent uh, are, you know, uh, considered uh, Latino in the United States. And I believe the I believe the African and black number is 14 percent. There's also a broader, if I could raise another broader cultural impact that a regime, if if the anti-racism types got the uh, social and political regime that they that they dream of of enacting, there's another cost, and that's to how people understand themselves. So there was another big uh, news story in the last week or so about a young woman who was about to graduate from the University of Pennsylvania, white uh, woman who um, had just gotten a Rhodes Scholarship, very prestigious, and in her application had emphasized the trauma she had endured as a as a uh, poor woman, girl who'd been shuttled around foster homes and endured horrible abuse. And this, this story obviously was, it turns out, then crumbled. A tipster wrote to the Rhodes Scholarship Committee and said she's lying. Uh, the whole thing, you know, kind of uh, became a scandal. She sounds somewhat sociopathic in the way that she's trying to defend herself. So uh, as an individual, I don't, you know, we'll see what happens. But she is not the only white person who has tried to craft an identity for themselves based around trauma and victimhood to play a game that is is exactly the game the anti-racism types have established in some of our more elite institutions. This emphasis on how have you suffered versus what do you hope to accomplish and give back to society? And that that's dangerous just in general, to have an entire cohort of young people, regardless of race, think that the most important thing about themselves is how they have suffered versus what they might accomplish down the road and what they might give back to their communities and to their nation. So those stories, we're going to see more of those, just like we've seen, you know, this, the, the, the Rachel Dolezal sort of the race hoaxing. There was a famous one in Canada about someone who claimed to be indigenous. More of those will also crop up if we allow regime, this regime to take hold and, and achieve any sort of permanence. Fast. It's all very fascinating stuff. You know what else is fascinating stuff? Dan Senor's Call Me Back podcast. This week, uh, the current one um, is with uh, Admiral James Tabritis, uh, and uh, you know who is like a Renaissance man. Like you, you know, wouldn't believe he's published eleven books. He, you know, he. Uh, he headed the Fletcher School at Tufts. He ran, you know, he was the supreme commander of NATO. Uh, he, I mean, I, I don't even know what what else. What, the The guy is amazing, and he has published a novel called Twenty Thirty Four, uh, co-authored with the uh, uh, with a veteran war novelist uh, Elliot Ackerman, um, which is essentially a kind of fictional scenario about how how uh, military conflict between the United States and China would start and how it would, how it would proceed. And uh, Dan has this uh, remarkable conversation with Stavridis. I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, previous podcast uh, features our friend and commentary contributor, Nick Eberstadt, uh, talking about what happened to America that led it from baby boom to baby bust. This is a Great podcast, Dan is a great interviewer, uh, funny, lively, and the um, and uh, thought provoking. You should add it to your feed if you haven't already. If you had added it as post corona, which is what it was called in its first year and a half of existence, um, 
it's there just under the name Call Me Back. If you haven't, just search Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, and uh, subscribe to the Call Me Back podcast with Dan Senor. Um, I'm trying to find this. We got a really remarkable email uh, from a listener yesterday uh, that I wanted to read to everybody because it just... Um, it's um it's it's really stunning and it goes to much of the same topic that we uh that we, you know that we're talking about here um here's what he writes I, uh, each weekday morning after my daughter has closed the car door and crosses the street to head into her school i take my phone out of my pocket and refresh the podcast app until i see the commentary magazine podcast arrive in my queue it is the one moment of the day when i have the feeling of being connected uh, on the ride to school with my daughter on Tuesday morning, she was discussing with me an impromptu speech she was required to make in her in a social studies class. The guide, guide rails for the speech were to answer the question, how your race and sexual orientation affect your worldview. She is 14 years old, this listener's daughter. My daughter was stressed about the speech and unable to organize her thoughts beyond the statement, I am a white girl. A 14-year-old eighth grader with no real-world life experience other than her family, friends, school sports, and one chaperoned date with a boy at Starbucks was being asked to discuss in, uh, in a foreign language, by the way, how her race and sexual orientation construct her worldview. She was not asked to discuss the stories of people with diverse backgrounds or ethnicities um, uh, with whom she has learned in class, but to discuss how being a white girl colors her world. Admittingly becoming frustrated, I told my daughter not to say that she would not to say that or and to say she was not white. I instructed her to say that she was an Italian American and to talk about how her grandfather came to the United States from Italy to work as a mason in Brooklyn, pouring concrete so that his children never had to pour concrete. She could talk about his obscenely large calf muscles, which made wearing pants difficult due to squatting as he smoothed the wet concrete. My daughter responded, dad, I cannot say that the entire class will call me a white supremacist. Where in my daughter's life will the feelings of guilt and inadequacy surface? Guilt for inequities she has played no part in. Inadequate because of the feelings that there must be something less about her, that she is not a member of these now in the minds of children, exalted yet still somehow marginalized classes, in the minds of a young girl, one's choices are to be eventually be raped by patriarchy or possibly oppress others as a second-class member of that patriarchy. For one to understand, you will never attain the full measure of your capabilities because of a system of sexism, but succeeding only demonstrates your complicity in the white supremacist power structure. Why even be a girl at all? Thoughts? I mean, you know, it's 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 precisely what uh, what I wrote about in, in this last piece about how this is there are so many parents out there like him, and when they find each other, and when they don't want to see their children tormented in this way, they 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 fight back. And and you know, the the detail about uh, the girl's Italian ancestors is is interesting because. It goes to this, the falsity of the claim that there is this aristocratic class, right? Which is, which is the, the point of what they, they want her to sort of confess to, right? But it's not true. 
Well, and it's why there's such an effort on the progressive left, the, I would say, elite progressive left, an actual aristocratic class we have in this country, to erase or uh, subsume that history under other histories. We saw this with the Tenement Museum in New York City. We're seeing it in small bore and large bore in lots of different cultural products. Um, if, you're, if your skin is white, you are part of this white systemic problem now. It doesn't matter if there are gradations. It doesn't matter. Or even now, in terms of higher education, if you're Asian American, you, you are still considered white adjacent. If you are Jewish, you are considered white adjacent, based solely on the fact that you cannot claim the same kind of oppression or the, the same lack of opportunity, even though opportunities were barred for all of those groups at some point in American history. I think it's very... It, it, Progressives are not playing the long game here either for this reason. Those kids, and I'll include, my, my sons are in high school and they have been force-fed a lot of nonsense over the years. Um, we talk a lot about it at home um, and I don't try to radicalize them in any way, shape or form, but I listen to what they, you know, I, I definitely question, okay, well, what do you think that means, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they will grow up to have their own political views. But from a cultural standpoint, I cannot imagine a better way to radicalize a generation of children white children or white adjacent children than this. What they are doing is going to have long-term backlash that is unpredictable at the moment, but could be far worse than anything they imagine going on right now. Because you cannot, you cannot sort of emotionally manipulate an entire generation of children in this way about something immutable that they have no control over and expect nothing, expect them simply to roll over and say, oh, okay, you're right. I'm terrible. It's, that's not, that's not going to happen. There's going to be unforeseen consequences consequences to these very bad policies. So this is why I, I, I repeat this all the time, and I just hope I'm, I, I live long enough to see it. For, for, for all its good and ill, because there's going to be ill too, um, there's going to be a right-wing 60s, a right-wing 1960s, where these kids who, just like you know the 60s, sort of emerge from this universe in which they were being constantly scolded and, and told about their immorality, and, and in which this that was all enforced um, by this massive superstructure involving corporations and government and their and in this case it'll be their woke parents you know and it'll just be sort of rejecting what they will come to see as um, this um, just this sort of small minded uh, um, uh, you know you know moralistic garbage you know. And it's it's, I, it's it's going to be fascinating. I think it's important to note that as we talk about all this, we are not defending the prevailing superstructure of of the American elite that seems to have been superseded with, with this kind of with, with this amazing speed by this revolutionary fervor. Uh, it, it, it is it is breaking down entropically. Uh, we have this fascinating lawsuit reported on yesterday by the Wall Street Journal against these ten or twelve Ivy League schools, which are, uh, I think it's probably they, it's probably an open and shut case that they have been colluding uh, in uh, violating antitrust laws in figuring out how to not how to uh, make sure that the wealthiest of their students pay full freight by not competing for them so that everybody gets their own rich kids to go and pay the $80,000 a year in tuition, room, and board. Um, and uh, they're not allowed to do this. In fact, there's like 
both legislation and like settlements of lawsuits and things like that, uh, that make it clear that even though these are nonprofit institutions and even though they are not, you know, that, that they, they, they cannot price fix and you can price fix on the upside as well as the downside, you know, um, and the point here is that all of this taken together, right, the, uh, that stuff, the, um, uh, the conditions that led to the Varsity Blues uh, side door recruiting scandal, the Asian American suit at Harvard, uh, the ways in which these radically leftist institutions uh, are, are, again, entropically kind of supporting the superstructure of American of the American liberal aristocracy, not the aristocracy in general, but a kind of created aristocracy of the children and grandchildren of people who went to those schools getting favorable admission to those schools and all of that. This is all breaking down, and it should. The question is what replaces it and how it replaces it, and replacing it with um, an unworkable and systematically unjust form of, uh, you know, we got screwed, so you're going to get screwed, is not the right way to go. But, um, you know, I don't think that these in, uh, let me just tell a quick story, editorial story about Abe, and I've talked about this before, but three, four years ago, uh, when they started, when uh, Bill de Blasio in New York started moving on the eight selective high schools, Christine mentioned the selective high school problem in Northern Virginia to, to Thomas Jefferson, the magnet, the science magnet school or the testing you had to test into second best public school in the country or something. And then activists started moving on it to destroy it because it was not fair because there were too many Asians there and not enough minorities there. Same is true. There are eight selective high schools in New York City and uh, they, they exist not uh, under the Aegis, uh, unlike most of the city of the city government, but of the state government, there are state laws that govern it. And de Blasio really wanted to destroy them. And I said, you know, there and every place else, hey, you should do a piece on, you know, the war on on meritocracy. And so A went off and started reading and studying and reading stuff. And he came back six weeks later and he said, I don't want to write that piece. Because the meritocracy as it exists right now is bad. The meritocracy is there to enshrine and support and create multi-generational conditions for the support structure of American liberalism that we oppose. The idea of meritocracy is good. The meritocracy as it exists is unhealthy. And so the piece ended up shifting into a piece about about the war on Asian Americans or Asian American high school kids. Um, I bring that up only to say that this is a very complicated subject because uh, we 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 should not then turn around and say everything was fine until these interlopers came in and destroyed it with their George Floyd riots. I mean, the system is cracking because it's corrupted at its root, right? Yeah, and, and especially it's and it's not just that the um, the meritocracy exists to um, sustain. Uh, the liberal, uh, the present-day liberal project, but um, also to sustain the the very real American elite, um, you know, in the form of, oh, God, you know, multi-thousand dollar uh, test training prep courses and things of that nature that that uh, poorer students don't have access to, um, 
legacy uh, uh, um, uh, um, admissions, legacy admissions, and all sorts of stuff that are that are you know completely intertwined with with what the meritocracy has become. Yeah, that are absolutely unjust. Yeah. And can we also point out, and I think in some ways, the Biden administration is a perfect example of the logical conclusion of this. These guys really aren't that good at what they do. Like they're not actually able to handle the challenges that as an elite, a highly educated, supposedly meritocratic elite, they're supposed to be able to handle. Right. They get into power and they muck things up, at least from the perceptions of Americans who are watching these, you know, debacle after debacle. And I remember from my, you know, because I I have the sort of Margaret Mead experience of being a conservative in in a pretty liberal town over the years when when Obama was president, I remember being at a dinner party where I I was the only conservative there. Um, and all these people who were actually in the Obama administration working on health care and working on Obamacare, and they're talking about all the challenges. And, and one of the guys said, I just, I, I can't understand why we can't figure this out. I mean, we are the smartest people in the world. I mean, everyone in that room went to the Ivy League. And so I couldn't, I finally had to stop biting my tongue. I'm like, maybe that's the problem. Like maybe you're seeing this challenge in a way that's incredibly narrow-minded because you all have the same experience, the same background, the same test prep, the same vacations. And it was, he, he just scoffed at that, of course. And, and on they went to, to various healthcare disasters. But that struck me as one of those moments when I was like, oh, they really do think they're smarter than everyone else. And when when evidence of that, when they're challenged by the real world you know, consequences of policies that go south, they tend not to learn from those mistakes. They tend to learn, learn look for a scapegoat. And yes, that's human nature. But there, there's something about that particular class of folks who are now running our country where it's it, the hubris there is, is really difficult to puncture. <laughs> So here we are. We're in the third decade of the 21st century. We're now well into the third decade of the 21st century. And it is clear that what America is going to look like to our children as they attain their majority or move on into their, you know, as, as, as I, you know, roll off to Scottsdale and pretend to play golf at some point, all of that kind of thing. Um, it's it's not going to look like this that that there's a real sense of that thing some of these things are coming to an end um we don't really understand how we don't understand what the structure is but we have all of these signs and the pandemic was really a break you know unwantedly undeservedly unjustly whatever the pandemic has accelerated a lot of these uh, internal contradictions about the about the functioning of American society and the real crisis in elite management of fundamental facts, right? I mean, it's like you don't want somebody who is not a, a fantastically trained engineer and somebody who has like decades of experience in it, you know, to run a power plant, right? You, that's who has to run a power plant. Like... It, because if someone doesn't do it right and all that, it'll blow up and you'll not have any power and thousands of people will die. The promise of the meritocracy and the promise of the people that you had the dinner party with and all of that, the promise of people like us in some fundamental sense, if we're all part of this class, is that we, is that we do know better and we don't. And tech, people who know tech know better often. Uh, but as we've seen from the public health establishment and various other things, they don't know what they're doing and they don't understand uh, human nature. They don't understand what what people are like. They don't they don't understand that one size fits all policies in a country this vast and heterogeneous is a crazy way to go about it. And 
the rubber is meeting the road. People are not listening anymore. And maybe it's conservatives who aren't listening to lip. Maybe it's liberals who think that all conservatives are evil. However you want to slice it, there is a crisis of legitimacy. And the problem with the crisis of legitimacy is that it's a legitimate crisis. In other words, you can't just say this is really, I mean, we've talked about this a lot. Like you can't just say it's really terrible because people don't have any faith in their institutions anymore. And what is a country that doesn't have faith in its institutions? But why should you have faith in its institutions? Why should you have faith in Harvard school with a $40 billion endowment that has a 37 or 38% rate of accepting legacy students so that it can continue to grow it's endowment that is already the size of the, you know, of, of several, you know, not small economies uh, on the planet Earth. Um, why don't they only let in poor students? Why do they make anybody pay tuition? The, you know, the earnings of their endowment, you know, you look at this and you say, this is not, you know, these, this is not the way healthy institutions that know what they're, that know what they're about and know what their purpose is function that goes from Congress, presidency, Congress on down. And that is a crisis. And that, but the, but the crisis isn't to, to create faith in institutions that are broken. It is that the institutions themselves need to be overhauled and, 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 and function better and, and, and overhauling them by making the country more unjust and, and, more divided and more divisive is not the way to do it, which is where we came in and why the counter-revolution is real and why it's going to have a major impact on whatever America is going to become next. So with that, <laughs> we will uh, we will bid you uh, a fond farewell until tomorrow. Uh, our last Nola's show. He'll be back. Uh, he'll be back on Monday, and to, but we will be back tomorrow for Abe Greenwald and Christine Rosen. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>